Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara, and I am your host today. Our goal with the Life as a Coder podcast is to bring you those timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. I want to thank our sponsors over at Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark. OncoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. I would like to take this moment to remind our listeners that this podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It is based on the years of experience that we have in the coding and billing industry. Whether it's myself or those that I interview, our goal is to provide you with education based on regulatory guidelines for officially mandated code sets. Today's episode is very special. Today, I invite to the show one of my good friends, Barbara Kabuzi. She and I have had so many great experiences over the last couple of years together, sharing in conferences and collaborating, and I'm so happy to have her on the show. I know you're going to enjoy today's episode. This is episode seven of season six, breaking down the global package for ENT services. Now, ENT is, of course, the specialty that covers ear, nose, and throat physicians and is otherwise known as otolaryngology. So I know you're going to love listening to the leading expert in the field of ENT for the business of medicine. Barbara Kabuzi, of course, is so dynamic. When you listen to her, you're going to just know that you're, you're listening to an expert. Now, even though Barbara Kabuzi is a leading expert in otolaryngology, let me tell you, she can code just about anything. She is a public national speaker and educator, writes many articles for various organizations, and has been very successful as an expert witness. So stay tuned for my conversation with Barbara Kabuzi. Right now, coders are more valuable than ever. Coders will play a greater role in the viability of providers and hospitals in the future. Coders working in the ENT specialty need to be trained in coding, anatomy, and be well-versed in payer guidelines. We have a specialty conference just for you coders in the ENT world. You will want to attend our specialty ENT virtual conference highlighting best practices in coding, billing, and compliance be the go-to expert in your field? Are you running an education program that requires knowledge of industry topics like these? Are you interested in a large range of topics to further your education? Are you ready to dive into other specialties? Whatever the case, we have you covered with our ENT conference. Jump on over to ozarkinstitute.oncospark.com to our virtual events tab and find the ENT conference. You can also find it in the show notes of this episode. This conference is led by industry leader, Barbara Kabuzi, a leading expert in ENT coding, billing, and compliance. You will not want to miss this virtual event and have your staff well-trained by the experts in the field. Well, as mentioned, I have my special guest, Barbara Kabuzi, one of my ladies that I just love listening to and learning from. Been learning from you, Barbara, I think for many years now. And so let me ask you, what have you been up to lately? Oh, man, I have been so busy. You know, when COVID hit, I had nothing to do 
from March of 2020 through August of 2020. I mean, I was like, what do I do? And I know actually that's when you and I hooked up. And the one thing I had to do is I got ready for your, I think it was your first remote workshop. And that was great. And I got busy and became an expert on all the waivers so that we could do telehealth because I had no customers because medical practices weren't in business when everything shut down in March of 2020. And then all of a sudden in August of 2020, when things, when medical practices started picking up, all of a sudden my work started getting so busy. And a lot of it has been expert witness work. Doctors who are either in trouble with payers, where payers are going after them for fraud and abuse charges or going after them for large refunds, saying that they submitted their claims improperly and asking for money back, or doctors who are actually in trouble with Medicare and the government and the OIG, and they actually have the AUSA, the assistant U.S. attorney, or state U.S. attorneys going after them for money back. And when they ask for money back, they ask for a lot of money because not only do they ask for money back when they think you've committed fraud, and it could be criminal fraud or it could be civil fraud, but they ask for three times what they think you were overpaid. And then they ask for up to $10,000 per incident that they think you have improperly submitted and been paid. So these penalties lots of times get into the realm of 15, 16, 17 million dollars. And an awful lot of these doctors that I've been working with are doctors who are in the 60s and 70s years old. And they don't have that kind of money. You know, everyone thinks doctors are rich. Well, the doctors I'm working with aren't rich. They, they've got comfortable retirements put away, but they don't have 15, 16, 17 million dollars. And a lot of them did not commit the kind of crimes that they're accused of, but some of them have done things wrong. And I've told the doctors, I, I can't defend you. I can't defend what you've done, but let's see why you've done it and how you've done it. And maybe I can help mitigate the damages that the authorities are going after. And, and that's what I've done. I've helped them try to negotiate a lower settlement. Had a, I had a doctor who they went after because he was using Incident 2 improperly. And the reason he was using Incident 2 improperly was because his billing company told him it was okay to do it that way. They gave oh him goodness. instructions. Can you believe this? Anymore, I can't. And what's amazing is the government wasn't going after the billing company. They had no interest in going after that billing company, but the billing company, and he had in writing, from that billing company, it's okay to bill incident two even as long as you're available by phone. And they had no interest of going after that billing company because they feel it's incumbent on the doctor to know this and that they shouldn't depend on the billing company, that they should know this information themselves. And the doctors don't know this information. They're too busy staying up on their clinical information right. to go to coding seminars and know this. They need to count on us to do it right. And that billing company, they got their money. 
the the government didn't go after them. And and I have to say, anyone who's listening who's from a billing company, don't consider this, oh, then I'm not going to get in trouble. That's not true. The government can decide to go after you if you do it wrong. Just so happened in this case, they were totally focused on the doctor. They felt the doctor did it wrong and they weren't going to consider the billing company. But they can consider the billing company and they can go after the billing company. They can they can go after you too. So don't consider yourself safe if you're doing it wrong. But yeah. he was given bad information and this poor guy, they were going after money that he just didn't have. I mean, if he liquidated his house, his entire retirement and his, his wife's jewelry and everything he had. And I got to tell you, the government was looking at that. The government was looking at the value of everything he owned. I couldn't defend what he did, but I was able to help him mitigate those damages to the point where he was able to come to a settlement with the doctor. So I've been doing that a lot. I've also been finding a lot of practices, and you probably hear this if you're in the Facebook groups, a lot of practices have been getting audited for their E&Ms where they modify with 25 and do minor procedures. And payers have been doing audits and have been asking for large refunds back on that. And so practices have been coming to me and asking me to do an audit, determine whether the payer is correct in disallowing what they've disallowed. And if not, helping them to defend their billing. If the payer is correct, help them in educate their physician to do better documentation. So that's been a lot of what my work has been. It's been great. It's really been enjoyable. And of course, I always love my ENT clients. Most of my expert witness, a lot of my expert witnesses ENT, but I also get other specialties. And what's really nice, you know, my company's name is CRN Healthcare Solutions and CRN actually stands for Coding and Reimbursement Network. And the reason for that is when someone comes to me in a specialty that's not my area of expertise, I usually know someone who is in that area of expertise. So I always have someone to reach out who is the subject matter expert in that area, whereas I'm the expert in ENT. And catch this, Jennifer, two years ago, three years ago, I would have told you that I was one of the three top subject matter experts in otolaryngology. There was Teresa Thompson, uh, Kim Pollock, and me. Well, Teresa Thompson retired. So then I said I was one of the two top subject matter experts in ENT because it was Kim Pollock and myself. Well, this week, Kim Pollock has retired. Oh, wow. So. I am the subject matter expert in otolaryngology. Last man standing, last woman standing. Uh, The two others have retired. I wish them the best to enjoy their retirement. Me, I love what I'm doing. I don't want to retire yet. Well, Barbara, I can definitely tell that you are a leading expert in ENT services, which is why I want to ask you, why do you love ENT services so much? What got you into this and why are you still doing it? It's funny. I started in this business by opening a billing company in um, 1991. 
And my first client was actually my doctor because I don't know if you guys hear it. I'm always sniffling and everything. I am the quintessential sinus ENT patient. And so I entered in my first client was an ENT doctor. And so I just dove in and, and for him, I had to become an ENT expert and I'm an engineer. And so when I do something, um, I do it whole hog. I really dive into it and, and really get into the nitty gritty and, and make sure I understand it all. And because he was my first client, it just, things fell into place that I got other um, ENT physicians. Um, I had other specialties that I, that I worked uh, with. I had a, a general and vascular surgeon. I had some orthopedics. I had primary care, endocrinology, neurology. But the, about 50% of my billing company was ENT. And I did so much in it. And, and just the way I am, I dove into it and became an expert. And um, so that's sort of how it fell. It's because I need ENT services. Yeah. Um, and I love it. And, you know, I'm always learning, you know, sinuses, uh, you know, ENT covers a lot of CPT manual. I don't know if you know this, but ENT touches on every chapter of your CPT manual, except for genturinary. So, but it's easy to become or be a sinus expert and not necessarily be comfortable in head and neck. It's you know easy to be a laryngology expert or an otology expert, ears, um, but not necessarily be noses uh, or a digestive expert. So there are many areas of ENT and ENT physicians do specialize in those areas. So there's always something to learn and to become better in it. So recently I was hired to um, do quality assurance for a facility coding building organization in Hawaii in head and neck. And it's been wonderful because I've been diving into that and really having to uh, do it well. And I've become a lot more into the whole head and neck, both the uh, resection area in terms of the cancers, as well as the reconstruction, which is a lot of the integrity and the flaps and grafts that are done for putting people back together after the, uh, the uh, cancer takes so much out of them. So it's really been interesting. And it's been so interesting. I've been writing articles for Healthcare Business Monthly when something I find is that interesting that I feel should be shared with everybody. Well, well, thank you for that. I know I've been always enjoyed your articles that I've read in that magazine and others as well. Now, I know you mentioned earlier about some of the things you've been working on, auditing rights, and we've heard the term this year, the year of the audit. So what are some of the common issues that you continue to see after all these years? I'm sure they're a lot of the same, especially now in your ENT audits. Well, I think one of the, the biggest one is the 25 modifier. ENTs do use the 25 modifier a lot because ENT physicians do diagnostic endoscopies, both the nasal endoscopy, the laryngoscopy, as well as a nasal pharyngoscopy, which is sort of in between. It goes through the nose down to the nasal pharynx, which is in between the, um, it doesn't quite go down as far as a laryngoscopy. 
And so because they do that, if a physician is evaluating a patient, makes the decision to do the endoscopy to get more information than they can on manual exam, they have to be able to document and support both the E&M and the endoscopy. Also, ENTs do a lot in the office in terms of minor procedures such as removal of uh, impacted cerumen. Uh, Sometimes they actually put uh, tubes into the ears uh, for adults uh, or maybe older children who can handle it. You know, so they do various procedures. They might control epistaxis, a nasal bleed in the office. And so if they're evaluating that patient and then performing these minor procedures, again, they're going to be doing ENMs with a 25 modifier. So I think you're going to find um, a higher incidence of 25 modified ENMs and minor procedures in an ENT practice. But we have to make sure that these are documented properly so that they're supported and the payers are comfortable with what's being submitted. And I, I think that's a really big area of focus for me in my audits. Another area is these diagnostic endoscopies. ENTs tend to, when they do an um, endoscopy, is they look into the area and they're looking for abnormalities. So they tend to do an endoscopy and they list what's abnormal and then they say everything else is normal. And this is actually the topic of my article in May of Healthcare Business Monthly. But payers do not consider that adequate documentation. They look to see the CPT manual, which says that this endoscopy should be examining the following areas, A, B, C, D, and E, which means if the physician does not list that they looked at A, B, C, D, and E, the payer does not consider that endoscopy as documented as performed. And so even though A, B, C, and D were normal, the physician has got to state that they looked at A, B, C, and D, and then E is the abnormality they found. They cannot say that all is normal except for a deviated septum that they saw, because if they don't list that they looked at the inferior turbinates and the sphenoid ethmoid area and all of those areas that are included in a nasal endoscopy, the payer will not consider that adequately documented. And so it's really important that these nasal endoscopies, the laryngoscopies and esophagoscopy, which is usually done in the OR, that you've got a template created in your EHR, or if you've got a manual, um, if you're you're still writing a written record, that you've got a form that is going to indicate that you have looked at all of these areas, even the normal areas, so that the payer is comfortable that you have viewed all those areas when you have done your endoscopies. Well, Barbara, I know also you mentioned something very exciting. Um, In addition to your audits, in addition to the other services you provide, you're working on something very special that is software related. So what is that? I've been working on a encoder type product called Otolaryngology Coding Advisor by Barbara Cabuzzi. It's a really neat product. It's got a great price point of $299. And it enables me to put my intelligence into the encoder. It's like a brain dump of what Barbara Cabuzzi knows about the code into the encoder. 
So there are notes in the encoder and I put my intelligence in terms of how I use those codes and how to and how not to and to see another code if it's this. And I put my information and how I would, if I was teaching you, use these codes and they're uh, for the otolaryngology codes, use these codes. And it puts all of that information into the coding advisor for otolaryngology codes. It's inexpensive. It does scrubbing. So you could actually, you know, put two or three codes in. You could put your diagnoses in. You could put your modifiers. It'll tell you how to order them. And if you have a 50 modifier, it'll calculate the 150% when it's determining the order. It's really a great product. When you actually do the scrubbing, it'll generate a charge ticket if you wanted to, so that that charge ticket can then be given to the billing department if coding is separate from the billing department. It has access to LCDs and NCDs. It's a really slick little product for $299. It's got ICD-10 lookup, CPT lookup by keyword. You can put in your own keywords. It just has a lot of great stuff. And it's called Otolaryngology Coding Advisor by Barbara Kabuzi. And it's just very exciting. Keep your eye out and keep checking my website, https colon slash slash crnhealthcare.com. Thank you so much, Barbara, for that. I'm so excited to dig in and learn more about this product. I know our listeners will too. We will put it in our show notes when we have that available and give you more information how to reach Barbara in our show notes later on. Thank you very much. Let's move on and talk about some other items now. Last week, my episode, I really was honing in on a majority of the global package that Medicare put out. But I wanted to talk about that multiple endoscopy rule. Uh, We know that some of these services do fall under certain global days. We know things are done a little differently, right, with with the ENT services, maybe versus colonoscopies or upper upper esophagoscopies. But I want to talk about the observation that you made. What was this observation that you recently made? Yeah. So people who work in GI are totally comfortable with what the multiple endoscopy rule is. Um, Colonoscopies, which is something where an endoscopy is done through a straight uh, tube, your colon, is if you do multiple endoscopies there, you are paid for the highest endoscopy. And then the second endoscopy is paid at the uh, rate for that endoscopy minus a base endoscopy. And this has been done for years in, in GI. And the same applies to esophagoscopies, which is the other end. And again, you've got a linear tube that the scope is going down. And again, GI coders have been used to this since I think the beginning of time. And so in 2020, CMS decided that they were going to apply the multiple endoscopy rule to endoscopic sinus surgeries, functional endoscopic sinus surgeries, which run from 31 to 31 through 31 to 98 uh, includes the balloon sinus dilation codes. And that means instead of being paid for the second, third, or fourth, fifth uh, endoscopic sinus surgery performed at 50% of the fee schedule, you would be paid at the fee schedule for that endoscopic sinus surgery minus a base endoscopy. 
And the base endoscopy was defined as 31231, which is nasal endoscopy, diagnostic, unilateral, or bilateral. So 31231, which is the base endoscopy, is a code that cannot be performed bilaterally. You can never bill 31231 with a 50 modifier, which means you can never be paid 31231 at 150%. So the RVUs or the fee schedule for 31231 is what it is, it's, it's never going to be paid at 150%. So for example, in 2022, the non-geographic adjusted fee schedule for 31231 performed in the office is 195.87, which is very generous and performed in an OR is 64.71. So this means that fee is subtracted from the non-geographic adjusted fee, if we're just looking at that, we're not considering where you are, from any multiple procedure. And so I actually created a spreadsheet uh, to look at this. So for example, if doctor does a total ethmoidectomy and a maxillary introsomy with removal of tissue, he would be paid 100% of the total ethmoidectomy. Uh, I'm gonna look at it in a facility. And so he'd be paid $329.80 for the total ethmoidectomy. And then the maxillary introsomy with removal of tissue, 31267. The full fee is $269.58. And you would then subtract the fee for the 31231 for uh, when you're performing it in order to determine what you're going to be paid. So performing 31231 in an OR is 64.71. So you would be paid the 269.58 minus 64.71, which is 204.87 if you're doing it in the OR. Okay. So instead of getting 50%, you're actually doing better under the, mul under the multiple endoscopy rule because you're not cutting it in half. You're not losing half of 269, which is like 135 and 135.50, you're only losing the 64.71. So you're actually doing better. But what has happened is, let's say I did a bilateral maxillary introsomy with removal of tissue. So my fee for 31.267 is 150% of 269.58. And that's 404.37. I have seen some remittance advices where Medicare carriers have taken that 6471, which is the Medicare allowance for a facility of the 31231, and multiplied it times 150% and subtracted that from the 40437. And as a result, instead of getting the 30366, which is what they should be paid, which is subtracting one times the 6471, because you cannot ever bill a 31231 as a bilateral. They are artificially increasing 31231 
as a bilateral fee to 150% and subtracting that and bringing it down to 307.31 and making it such that you're losing 32.36 when you get paid for that. That's wrong because that fee for the base endoscopy, which is a diagnostic endoscopy, is never paid at 150%. So they can't artificially increase it to 150%. And so I feel, and anyone can contact me, I'll help you. If you have a payer doing that, you should fight it. And I actually think this could be, um, when you look at appeals, I don't know if anyone's heard me talk about appeals. This should be an appeal that should go right to an expedited uh, lawsuit to federal court because the payers are doing something drastically wrong, which are cost not only costing every day, now it's been costing practices. It's been costing practices since 2020. And it's been costing a lot of money. You know, in, in the uh, facility, it's costing you $32.96 per multiple procedure. And in the office, if you do multiple procedures, it's costing you $97.94 in reimbursement, non-geographic adjusted. So if you're in a geography where you get paid more than 100%, like New Jersey, New York, California, it's actually costing you more. And if you're in an area that you get paid less, which I believe that's like where you are, uh, Jennifer, it would be uh, costing you a little less than that. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think so many times and I've talked to different people um, and I train my staff as well when we when we do audits and, and, and do billing for clients. We need to check the payments. Like, don't just post the payment and everything's fine. We have to review those. That's what every practice should be doing. And if you're not reviewing them, you're missing potentially situations like this that are severely affecting your bottom line, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they, I often have said, heard people say, you know, payers could be shorting you uh, two cents or five cents along the way, and that could add up to a lot of dollars. Well, this is potentially where a payer is shorting you uh, over $32 or over $97, almost $98 along the way. That's a lot of money uh, because um, ENTs do a lot of endoscopic sinus surgeries and, and that's per multiple procedures. And an endoscopic sinus surgery can have four bilateral, uh, excuse me, can have three multiple surgeries mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because you, you, there are four sinuses. You're going to have one, which would be the top surgery, and then you can have three behind it. So it, it, it could be a lot of money. I agree 100%. That's insane. Well, I think it's really important, like you said, to take that um, that information. When you look at that, just don't just let it go. Fight it. Understand this this endoscopy rule, how it applies to ENT services, and how you need to be prepared to make that fight and go further if you need to to make sure that doesn't keep happening. Jennifer, one other thing that I found, which really weird, mm -hmm. is there's actually instances where the fee schedule of uh, a endoscopic sinus surgery minus the fee schedule for the base endoscopy comes out negative. Oh my gosh. And um and because I don't I don't I no longer do billing. I closed my billing company in 1995. So I don't see um remittances on a regular basis. I'm curious how the payers are handling that. So for example, if you do a if you do a maxillary entrostomy without removing of tissue, which means just opening the maxillary sinus on one side, 
as a secondary procedure, it actually has an allowance less than in the office, less than what a diagnostic um, endoscopy has, which is weird because it means the fee schedules are not aligned. That looking in the sinus pays more money than opening up the maxillary sinus. And this makes no sense that doing work in a sinus pays less money than just looking in the sinuses. So I don't know whether pay, the, the Medicare carriers are actually taking away $13.5 when you do a maxillary entroscopy in the office as a secondary procedure, because it actually is $13.5 less than a diagnostic endoscopy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. You mentioned something about post-op functional endoscopy sinus surgery. That's the FESS for short, right? Yep. Doctors, um, when you do uh, functional endoscopic sinus surgery, the treatment protocol is to do um, anywhere from one to three debridements postoperatively. When they develop the uh, relative values and um, the, this fee schedule all the way back in 1992, Originally, functional endoscopic sinus surgeries had global dates, but they had higher relative values. And the problem was the uh, specialty of otolaryngology had pressure to reduce the number of relative values that they were taking from the pie. Remember this whole budget neutral pie. And they said, well, how about if we give functional endoscopic sinus surgeries zero global days and we reduce the number of relative values. And so you can get paid for every uh, service that you provide uh, after the date of surgery. Will you accept that? And the doctor said, hey, yeah, we, we can do that. We, we think that's good. And they didn't think that, oh, we might be doing functional endoscopic sinus surgeries with other surgeries that do have global dates. And so what they found mm-hmm. out is they don't do the FEST surgeries in a vacuum. And so they'll do the FEST surgeries with a septoplasty, which has 90 global dates, or they'll do FEST surgeries with a a submucosal coblation of the inferior turbinates, which has 10 global dates, or they'll do the FEST surgeries with an excision of the turbinates, 30130, which has 90 global dates. And what that does is that puts a global on the surgery that was just done. And so that promise of getting all their services after completing the lower paid RVUs for the FEST surgery, they're not getting paid for their services of the debridements after. And so it was said, Mm -hmm. oh, you'll get paid, don't worry. (laughs) Just indicate that the debridements are a staged procedure, or you can indicate that the debridements are unrelated to what is created the global. You can do it either way. And so when you do your post-operative debridements and you have done in the original surgery some CPT code, such as a septo or a 30802, such as a coblation of the turbinates, or a 30130, which is an excision of the turbinate. You don't have to worry about 30140 because that now has zero global days. But if you've done one of those three with your FES and you, have, you are in the global, 
and the doctor is now doing a debridement. On that debridement, 31237, and if it's done bilaterally, make sure you put your 50 modifier on it. You need to put either a 58 modifier for a stage procedure or a 79 modifier for unrelated because it's unrelated to the septum, which created the global, or the inferior turbinate, which created the global, because what is being debrided is the sinuses, not the septum and not the turbinate. And so make sure the documentation shows that the sinuses are being debrided. Perfect. Very, very important. In a stage procedure, when you pre-cert the uh, sinuses, the sinus surgery, make sure you find out if you need to pre-cert the stage procedures. Excellent point. I think that's probably one thing that I think a lot of practices don't think of when they're pre-certing. We, of course, we could talk all day about the the burdens we have with prior authorizations. Let's not go there. <laughs> but um, yeah. I want to kind of piggyback off what you said about those modifiers, because I think this will lead right into a good discussion um, because we are talking about the global package and different things that affect it. I want to dig in and talk about these surgical global modifiers. Last episode, I, I focused on 25 and 57, my E&M only modifiers. But let's talk about these global ones, the 58, 78, and 79. We get a lot of confusion specifically on the 58 and 78. So let's talk about those. What is your takeaway, what you can give to our audience about how to really unconfuse the 58 and 78? Okay, 58 is staged it can be planned or unplanned and that's really important a lot of people think 58 has to be planned and that's not true you can end up doing an unplanned 58 modifier and what what an unplanned is is because it's not because you have a complication it's because you didn't achieve the outcome that you were trying to achieve Part of the reason 58 exists, it's not the whole reason, because there are some procedures that will always have a 58. For example, all these head and neck surgeries that I'm doing have 58s because first you take out the cancer and then lots of times within the global, you start doing the reconstruction. And so that's going to be planned 58s. But you can have an unplanned because you do a conservative treatment for the patient because you don't want to necessarily cut everything out. And then you are, you're doing something conservative, hoping to reach the outcome you wanted to do. And then, but that outcome did not happen. Your conservative treatment didn't work. You're still treating the original problem. You did not get your outcome. So you have to go back in and try again. Maybe the say something similar, uh, something more extensive, uh, to reach your outcome, and so that's an unplanned stage procedure. So imagine where you would do an excision of a partial tongue for a a cancer, and the initial pathology looked like you got all of the cancer, and then the final pathology comes back and there was a margin that wasn't clear. And so you have to go back because your original goal was to rid this patient of all malignancy. So you have to go back in and take some more of the tongue before you even get to reconstructing that tongue. 
And so that would have a 58 modifier because you would be in the global period of that partial glossectomy. And so you would use a 58 modifier even though you didn't plan on it because you didn't reach your outcome of getting, uh, of clearing that patient of all cancer. So that's an example of an unplanned 58 modifier. Right. So how I teach that is ask yourself, am I treating the same problem that I was treating originally when I did my first surgery that created this global? And then that's a 58. Whereas 78 is for a complication. A complication is something that the original surgery created, not the problem the patient came to you for, but the, you did the surgery and then the surgery created a hematoma that needs to be drained. And so you go back in and you drain the hematoma, that's creating a complication and that's a 78. And so if you say, I'm treating something that the prior surgery created. And had I not done the surgery, I wouldn't have this problem. That's a 78. And so that's the difference between a 58 and a 78. So you have to say to yourself, what caused this problem? Was it the original problem or is it a problem from the surgery? And that's how I differentiate between 58 unplanned and 78. And then 58 planned, you're always going to know that you stage this uh, patient that first you're going to do A and you can't do B until A is healed a little bit. And mm -hmm. then you're going to do B and then you're going to do C. And all of these are in the global. Right. I hope that helps. Now, yeah. and by the way, and it makes a difference because 58 reset your global. If you're 10 days into the global, you're going to get a new 90-day global, 90 days out again. And you are paid 100% of the fee schedule because you get right. a new global. If you are 20 days into the global and you, the patient gets a hematoma, you drain that hematoma, the global still only has, uh, you're 20 days into your 90-day global, you only have 70 days to go. It does not reset the global. And because of that, you are only paid the interoperative allowance. You are not paid the preoperative and the postoperative components of that surgery. So if you look at the full fee schedule for that drainage of the hematoma, you're not paid that. You're only paid the interoperative allowance for performing that procedure under the 78. So you will never see 100% allowance on that procedure when it's a 78. But right. you have not lost that 20 days of post-op that you've already uh, clocked on that 78. Right, because you originally got paid the first surgery. That was all part of that surgery, right? So you're right. really just getting paid extra for this procedure, but it's not starting over. You're still getting paid for your post-op or pre-op in that original surgery. Correct. Whereas 50, 58, you're getting a whole new pre-op, you're getting a whole new post-op, and you're getting a whole new global. Exactly. Very, very good stuff. Yeah, I think this really helps. I think this really will help our listeners. Uh, if they haven't understood it before, understanding the ins and outs, not just of what the modifiers mean, about how they affect payment. Now you can go back to your surgeons when they question their reimbursement, their RVUs, <laughs> you can explain to them 
why this is the case. Now, Barbara, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I know you and I both love to teach about modifiers. If you have a few extra minutes, if we could do a brief overview of some of these issues we find with these bundled surgeries, because now we have this issue where we know how to apply the global modifiers, but what happens when we have two procedures that are normally not payable together, but in this instance, they are. What are those modifiers? So 59 modifiers are when things are bundled together and never use a 59 modifier on two procedures that aren't bundled together. 100%. Keep, Keep in mind that payers are tracking your use of the 59 modifier. Payers are tracking your use of the X modifiers. X E X S X P X U. That means separate encounter, separate structure or site, separate physicians in the same group, separate non overlapping. The X modifiers are much better to use than the 59 if your payer recognizes the X modifiers. Why? Because there is concern that the 59 modifier is being overutilized and improperly utilized. And it's consi- it, there's fear that, they, that the 59 is just slapped on to unbundle two codes. Whereas the X modifiers are not, you can't be just slapped on. You have to think about it why am I using an X modifier? Mm -hmm. Is this a separate structure or site? Is this a separate encounter? Is this a non-overlapping situation or Mm -hmm. these separate positions? You have to read the documentation and see if one of those supports it. And if it doesn't support it, you can't use the X modifiers. And therefore the payers that accept the X modifiers, which includes Medicare, Part B. I'm told it includes United Healthcare. I'm told some of the blues do accept it. So you have to look at what of your payers. Mm-hmm. You have to interrogate your payers and find out who you do. And find and you want to find this out. And if they take the X modifiers, you want to use them because your payers are going to be less likely to audit you and be concerned that you are doing improper unbundling if you're using your X modifiers. What is concerning is your, the Medicare carriers, I know uh, at least Novitas has told us that despite the fact that the X modifiers are available and that practices are using the X modifiers, the 59 modifier is still used more than any other modifier. And not mm-hmm. only is it used more than any other modifier, it is used more than every other modifier added together. It, that, that just blows my mind because nobody should be using the 59 modifier. Everybody should be using the X modifiers. Because if I was a payer, I would be auditing every utilization of a 59 modifier. Because if you're using the 59 modifier, you have no idea why you were unbundling it. I've had questions from people about putting a modifier on the second code. And I look it up and I'm like, well, these two codes aren't even bundled. Why are you even adding this modifier? Exactly. That's part of the problem is people 
are putting 59 modifiers on codes that don't need it. Someone told me um, they were questioning whether a 25 modifier is needed when you do an ENM and a um, and a uh, EKG. If a payer has put the same global to XXXs as zero day globals, you need a 25 modifier. Right. But then someone says, oh, I put a 25 modifier on the ENM and a 59 modifier mm -hmm. on the EKG to tell the payer it's a separate procedure. OMG, there is no need for that 59 modifier. And you are adding to your audit red flag. Yep. And there's a good chance you're not going to get paid when you put a 59 modifier on that EKG. So there is a lot of usage of the 59 modifier just because people don't understand how to use it. You would never use a 59 modifier, first of all, on a, on a procedure alone. You right. would never use a 59 modifier on when you have two procedures that are not considered bundled. Now, you may have two procedures that are not bundled by NCCI, but this non-Medicare payer is bundling them together. So you do need to use a separate procedure modifier, whether it be an X or 59, because this payer bundles it together. I understand that. There are payers that bundle septoplasties with inferior turbinectomies or septoplasties with fest surgeries. So we may need to put a 59 or an XS for separate site on a septoplasty for a payer that we already know is bundling it, but not on every payer, just on that payer because they're right. bundling it. So Agreed. you do not want to use the 59 or the X modifiers if the CPT code is not bundled with anything. Excellent. But, and that's what I tell my practices too. I say, you're not just coding things and getting them out the door. You're not just slapping a code on and processing it. You have to look at the payer and they're all individually <laughs> separate. They have yeah, their own yeah. rules and you have to know where to go. It's We're not just coders. We're also billers. Our goal is to get it paid. The code is the code is the code, I always say, but doesn't mean you're going to get paid for that service. Right. And, and that's what makes our jobs hard. And it also, yeah. make, it, it also makes us indispensable. And it's what makes us professionals and experts. And we need to know that. And in today's day and age with computers and intranets, we should be keeping spreadsheets by payer of what we need to do. That this payer bundles these codes and therefore we need either a 59 or an X. And these payers take the X modifiers and these payers do not. We should have that information. and. Potentially, we should be asking our practice management software, can we build in which payers require the 59 and which will allow us to use the X modifiers? Because now our practice management software is more sophisticated and can support, a lot of them can support that kind of intelligence. They really can. There's a lot of sophistication there. And it's all about, you know, it's only as good as the person who builds those edits. And the same on the insurance company side. When they build those edits, only as good as the person who, who created that. So if they need to fix it, if they realize one of their edits is not working right, you, you, they are, you make them aware of it, then they fix it. Same on your EMR side. Figure out what you need to know, make your software do it, and it flags you. The biller is like, okay, I need to add something here, and then they'll do it. Yep. 
and you do not want to make yourself a target. We no. want to make our we want to make ourselves as small as possible and not a target of payers. And that's why we want to use the 59 modifier as little as possible. But if we have to use it because the payer does not process the X modifiers, we have to use it in ENT, the 59 modifier or the X modifiers are used a lot because we do different procedures on each side. And so mm -hmm. because we do a maxillary entrostomy on the left and a maxillary entrostomy with removal of tissue on the right, we need to use either a, a 59 or an XS modifier. It's, it's just required. And because we have to do that and we do it a lot, we want to use the XS if we can get away with it with the payer because otherwise we have a lot of 59 modifiers, which mm -hmm. puts us on the radar. And so- exactly keep that in mind. And, and sometimes if the payer doesn't give us the information, take one claim, put the excess modifier on it, and then track that claim and see if it gets paid. If it doesn't get paid with the excess, you're going to have to resubmit it with a 59. But it means now you've determined that this payer doesn't accept the X modifiers. And then again, a year later, try it again with that payer because they may have changed. So even if you can't get the information from them via conversation, via email, you can try it trial and error by one claim and just go trial and error. I mean, you can, it means you delay getting that, that claim paid by three weeks maybe, but at least you find out whether they're going to process that modifier. Excellent, excellent. Well, Barbara, this has been so educational, not only for me, but I know for my listeners, and this is going to be a favorite episode for so many people, especially all you ENT coders out there. I know you're going to be listening. So thank you, Barbara, for joining the show. We, we are so grateful. And I can't believe I haven't had you on sooner, but I'm glad you're here today. And I hope to have you on in the future again. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Jennifer. I love talking to you. As you see, I can just keep talking forever. <laughs> yes, me too. And, you know, we get along so well, so I, I, I'm not surprised. Well, I thank you for listening to the Life as a Coder podcast. This is Jennifer McNamara. I have been your host today. I want to reach out and thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.